You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. I was thinking about the frog today. You know the, the story that gets told over and over about how if you put a frog in boiling water, it'll jump out, but if you put it in room temperature water on a stove and gradually increase the heat, it won't know because it'll adapt as it goes and then it will just like boil alive. You guys have heard that story, that illustration given a dozen times. Okay. Well, you know, it'd be the poor frog. It'd be great if there was somebody to tell the frog, you got to get out of there. And in every way, that's what the prophet Joel is. He is the guy telling the frog, get out of there. Sometimes when you read the Old Testament, I've read through the Old Testament this summer, all the historical books, and uh, the thing that keeps getting you is you keep thinking to yourself, my Lord, how did they get to this point? God will do some miraculous thing, like, I don't know, destroy Egypt and part the Red Sea. And he will give them promises and he will provide for them. And then just like before you know it, they have wandered from God and they are worshiping false gods. And by false gods, I mean things like a golden cow that Aaron made. And they're worshiping it. How in the world do they get to that point? Well, they get there the same way the frog suddenly finds itself in boiling water. Now, the first thing I want to teach you today is that the frog in the water thing is not really true. I know for some of you that has just burst every team training thing you've ever done. Not true. Put a frog in in boiling water, it'll jump out. Turn up the water on the frog, it'll jump out. It's a frog. It jumps. It's going to get out of wherever you put it. All right? The reason, though, that that story is so told so often is because it very aptly des- describes a very human tendency that we have, which is to adapt, to accommodate, to sync up with our surroundings. And there's something that's good about that, but the danger is that we will adapt to our surroundings to the point of harm. You can just think about it like on a national cultural scale, okay, that the, the kinds of explicit evil, the spiritual darkness that surrounds us in our day um, is shocking. We don't think it's shocking because we've grown up in it. You know, our eyes have adjusted. It's just the way things are. But our grandparents think it's shocking. And the same will be true of our grandchildren and of us. Someday, you all will be saying the phrase, young people, and you'll be talking about how shocked you are about what's going on in their world. It's just how things go. Every generation needs a wake-up call, needs a warning to, to look around and see reality for what it is and to do something about it. And the prophet Joel was sent by God to give his generation and us such a warning. We need this book as much as they needed it then. The reason is, is that we were all, we are all like frogs in the water. Um, the first sign that you're a frog in the water is that you don't think you are. And what I mean by the fact of us being frogs in the water is that I, I don't think, me included, me especially, I don't think we take sin and the consequences of sin seriously enough. I think we underestimate that. Uh, Some of it has to do with the way that we talk about grace so much. We become like those in Romans 6 who said, oh, grace is so great. Should we just keep sinning so we get more grace? And Paul says, no, no. 
That'd be, like, that'd be stupid. That'd be like a frog in the water. I also mean that I think so many of the ways, so many of our methods for dealing with our struggles um, are not really explicitly aimed at restoring fellowship with God. I think they're explicitly aimed at sort of getting life back to normal. They're aimed at coping, at adapting. If the prophet Joel uh, were to speak to the frog, he undoubtedly would say, Hey, frog, that ain't a lily pad. You know what I'm saying? Get out of there. And he says the same thing to us. He says, you have got to do something about your situation. You've got to wake up and you've got to get out of there. Now, to talk about sin and judgment and repenting of sin and all the stuff that Joel is going to talk about, for some of you, triggers an emotion like, really? I mean, this is what preachers do, right? They just make people feel bad for being people. And can we talk about joy? Because that's part of the Christian life, too. And I, I get all that. Trust me. I'm reading Joel this week, and I'm thinking, why did we do all of these back-to-back? I challenge you to read Joel and think of a funny story to tell if you had to teach through it. It's really hard to do. And so I get it. I'm with you. I'd love to talk about some, some joy. It turns out Joel has a lot to say about joy. He wants us to look into the reality of who God is in his judgment against sin, because He is revealed in his judgment in such a way that we also find him there to be gracious and merciful. And real joy, real life, real peace comes through that. It comes through repentance. So let me give you a little overview of the book of Joel. I'll do this very quickly, and then we'll we'll focus in on Joel's message about repentance. All right? Joel 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. All right, that is literally almost all we know about Joel. We know his name. We know that God gave him a word. We know his dad's name. Uh, To date this book, to to convincingly say who his audience was, is very, very difficult to do. There's lots of uh, good academic speculation, but no conclusive evidence. I say all that to say is that there's a purpose in this book to be passed down through generations. That's what he says, next verse. Hear this, you elders, give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing ever happened in your day or in the days of your fathers? Tell it to your children and let them tell it to their children and to their children. So Joel's message is relevant for every generation. In uh, verses 2 through verses 12, he describes this calamity that has come. It it has been a plague of locusts and a severe drought that has utterly devastated the land and its people. And then beginning in verse 13, Joel calls the priests out and he says, Listen, do you not see what's going on? You need to gather all the people together in assembly and, and weep and wail and repent. Cry out to the Lord. And then at the end of chapter 1, Joel himself cries out to the Lord. Now, in chapter 2, we get another description of some devastation. And here's what I think is happening. Uh, Joel, in the midst of the current devastation, gets a vision of an even greater day of judgment and destruction to come. In chapter 1, he basically says, this locust plague, this drought, God did this. He is judging our sin. That's why we need to turn to him. And then in chapter 2, he says, look... There's going to be an even greater day of judgment to come. And he describes it as this invading army that just devours everything before it. And in fact, it is the army of the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 10. 
The earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army. For his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. And he doesn't mean awesome in the way we mean awesome. He means dreadful. It will cause you to be full of awe. And then he asks a rhetorical question. Who can endure it this day of the Lord? In the next section... He tells the people, if you will repent, God may lift his hand from this disaster that he has caused us. He may lift his hand of judgment and instead give us a blessing. And as you move on through chapter 2, between verse 17 and 18, there is this apparent repentance. It doesn't say it explicitly, but in verse 18, he says, Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. So apparently they heeded Joel's warning and they repented of their sin, and God heard them. He, he promised blessing on them to restore their land, to restore the years that the locusts have eaten. And then you get down to the uh, verse 26 and 27 in that chapter, and God is saying, you are going to be plenty satisfied. You're going to know that I am God. You will never again be put to shame. Okay, so locust plague, a call to cry out to God, then a vision of an even greater day of judgment to come, and all the more need to cry out to God and to repent, and they do. And God hears them, and He says, I will will bless you. I will restore your land. Now, in chapter 2, verse 28, Joel then begins to look to a future time, a time past this generation. He says, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all the flesh. This is God speaking. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. He goes on to say, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so Joel is saying, not only is God blessing and restoring these people, there will come a day of even greater blessing, not just material, but spiritual. He will pour out his spirit. And then chapter 3 describes uh, the final day of the Lord, the day of judgment. And he uses this metaphor of a valley. He speaks of God gathering all the nations into this great valley. It's not literal, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an image. And it is called the valley of decision. Uh, verse 14, he says, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Now, this is not a valley where the nations or where the people will will make a decision about God. That time has passed. They've already been called to repentance. This is where they will learn of and experience God's decision, God's verdict, if you will. And for those who have not turned to Him, they will find Him on that day to be a consuming fire, a God of judgment. But, verse 16, but the Lord is a refuge to His people and a stronghold to the people of Israel. All right, so this is the book of Joel. God judges the sin of his people so that they would be led to repentance and blessing. And for those who do not repent, God will on, ultimately on the day of the Lord bring final judgment against them and their sin. You can't read Joel without thinking, I need to repent. I'm not even sure I know what repent means, but I need to do that. 
And you can't have that thought without thinking, okay, I really need to know how to do that, like for real. And so that's my goal today. I just, I want us to look at Joel and what he teaches about repentance so that we can get some clarity about how to repent. And I'm just going to walk you through a few steps, if you will, of repentance. I don't think there's a formula. I think repentance is, is more relational than that. But I do think there are some very key ingredients, and they tend to follow a particular order or pattern as we walk through them. And the reason I want to do it that way is because I find that most of us get stuck in one of these areas, in one of these steps. And so if you can get some clarity today about where you're getting stuck, and if you can get some courage and some faith to press through that with the Lord, he he might be led to a fuller and richer repentance and therefore more joy in life than you've known in him. All right, so let's jump into that. Step one, be honest about your reality. Uh, Most of us have an impulse to look away from hard things, to look away from calamity and destruction. Uh, We just don't want to deal with it if we don't have to. And so here's what we do. Uh, Our typical MO is to avoid reality, usually through distraction. So whatever it is, TV, recreation, relationships, doing good things, lots of really good things, whatever it is to be distracted so that you don't have to deal with conflict or have to deal with consequences of sin or have to deal with just reality in general. I saw a headline uh, this week, and who knows if it's true or not, but the headline was that in a test that was done on men uh, where they were given the choice of electric shock or being alone with their thoughts, the majority of them chose electric shock. You know why? They do not want to deal with reality. Most of us don't want to deal with the reality of our souls, and it's, it is the reason why we don't want to pray or read the Bible. It's not because we don't think there's a good things. It's that we don't want to, the spotlight turned on us. When busyness doesn't work, we try to escape by giving ourselves so completely to something that it owns us. These are our addictions. And so when life presses you, when you feel stressed, tired, or bored, or irritated, where do you go? See, instead of thinking about why do I feel this way, what could God be doing in my life or wanting to show me, we hit the escape hatch, and we go wherever that takes us. I used to have a mentor who would tell me all the time, Will, reality is your friend, all the time. And he was wanting me to just be honest about my reality, to to get the kind of feedback and input, to do the kind of assessment that I would need to do in order to grow as a person. And uh, he would always tell me and my other friend this all the time. Well, one day he said it. He said, hey, guys, reality is your friend. And my friend, hey, listen, my friend said, listen, sometimes your friends are ugly. Because they are. And that's what happens in Judah is things got real ugly. And they didn't want to look. That's why Joel begins this book by saying, hey, have you guys seen what has happened here? Has anything like this ever happened to you or your dad? Have you ever heard of anything like this? He wants everyone to take a hard look at reality and let it sink in. And I mean everyone. Verse 5 in chapter 1, he says, awake you drunkards. He just starts with the people who are drinking their life away, who have escaped in that way, and he says, wake up. You know why this is so bad for you? 
The land has been devoured. That means all of the grapevines have been devoured. There is no wine left. So drunkards weep and wail because there's nothing left to drink. And he tells the farmers, verse 11, of all people you should be ashamed. You have nothing to show. There's nothing left in the field. The locusts ate it all. And then he comes to the priests in verse 13, and he says, you guys should mourn. The priest's job was to offer uh, sacrifices and offerings in the worship of God. And so there is no grain and there is no wine, which means there is no grain offering and there's no drink offering in the worship of God. The priests are out of a job. They have no way to lead the people in worship, and they should mourn. Everybody should mourn because it affects everyone. Joel doesn't just want them to look around and figure out a way to cope. He doesn't want them to adapt. He doesn't want them to criticize. He doesn't want them to make jokes about the brokenness around them, which is what we're apt to do. He wants them to weep and wail and mourn. This is the first thing. We need to learn what it means to look around in our world, in our country, in our city, in our church, and in our own souls, and look at it and be honest and mourn and weep. We do not like to do that. We like to focus on the positive. And I think there's a place for that. But not in Joel. Joel is saying this is not a time to focus on the positive. This is a time to weep and mourn and wail. Now, I'll be honest with you, this is actually uh, where I get stuck the most, which is really troublesome because I don't even get past step one. That's where I'm at in my walk with God. Because in my mind, um, there's lots of backstory to this, but the the upshot of it is I have this really high view, quote-unquote, of God's sovereignty. But I view it in such a way where it, it leads me to believe then that he's somehow actually disassociated from things, that he's somehow not grieved by what he sees. You know, because he's so in control, he's beyond the grief. He knows it's going to work out. But the witness of Scripture is just the opposite, that God is angry and grieved by what's going on in our world and in my own heart. And so for me, and maybe for you, the first step, the challenge is to get to a place where we look around and ask, Lord, might I feel what you feel about what's going on? If we don't, we'll never do anything about it. All right, step two. Cry out to God. This is what Joel tells the people, verse 14 in chapter 1. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. He's saying... When you weep and when you wail and mourn, do so oriented to God. Turn to Him in your weeping and mourning. This is the difference between complaining and praying. You can weep and wail and mourn and talk about your reality, but if none of it is oriented toward God, you're just complaining and whining. The biblical uh, version of complaining is to lament, and it means to come to God with your grief. I know that seems obvious to turn to God in repentance, but it's embarrassing as I think about it how often that's not what I do. Like when I have troubles, I am very prone to go to others with them, to read about it, to try to fix it, 
And God may use all those means to bring restoration to my life, but listen, let me tell you, counsel, research, um, even spiritual activities, none of it works when it's divorced from genuine repentance. Because repentance is about turning to God. I do it on the other end, too. When people come to me with their problems, I think, yes, of course you would come to me with your problems. I'm so helpful. And I want to help. And I want to help so much that I functionally leave God out of it. I've got solutions. All you need is me. Cry out to the Lord. He alone can save. I can't save you. We don't need a redo. We need repentance. We can't fix or manage sin. We can only be delivered from it and sanctified through it. And so we cry out to the Lord. Uh, There are a variety of reasons why we have suffering and hardship in our lives. And and if you read the prophets, you, you sort of have to wrestle with that question. Wait, how is it that God did this? And uh, we can't nuance all of that here. Let me just give you a little survey. Here's all the reasons I see in Scripture of why you might be going through hardship and suffering. And, and the reason I'm telling you this is because one of the reasons we don't cry out to the Lord is, is that we are slow to see that He might be involved in what's going on in our lives. All right, so very quickly, uh, the world itself is just broken because of sin. Nothing works the way that it should. If you own a home, you know what this is about, all right? That's just the fallenness of the world. We're usually pretty comfortable with that explanation of things because it's impersonal. You could also experience hardship and suffering because of persecution. Peter says anyone who wants to live a godly life, he's going to get persecuted. So that could be part of it. Uh, You could be under spiritual attack. This is why Paul says in Ephesians 6, our battle, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against spiritual powers of darkness. This is what's going on in Job. Why is Job, all that stuff happening to him? Well, because Satan said, look, give me this guy. Let's see what he's made of. Uh, You could be experiencing hardship and suffering because of sin. Personal sin, corporate sin, national sin. I know we don't like to think that our individual lives are connected to anything else, but they are. And you see examples of all of those in Scripture where God brings judgment against a people because of their sin. That's what's happening in Joel. It's national sin, but that nation is made up of individual sinners sinning. So all that can happen. David says in Psalm 32, I am crushed, I can't breathe. My soul is wasted away because I haven't confessed my sin. All right, so that can happen. Two other things, though, that are important. Uh, God can send hard things into our lives to train us. It may not be because you've done anything wrong. It might be because God wants to produce some quality of character in you that can only be achieved or come about through suffering. This is what James says. Our suffering produces in us character and hope. Finally, God can send hard things into your life because of your sin. He wants to discipline you. Now, for a non-Christian, for what some people are experiencing in Scripture, the final day, this is judgment against the wicked. For a Christian, it's discipline. And the author of Hebrews says, look, you're going through hard things, but it's God's discipline. It's because He loves you so much. Like a father loves his child, He won't let you just wander astray. He'll block up your life so that you return to Him. I experience this often. When my prayer life is all clogged up, when I'm all kinds of irritable and blaming everybody else, when nothing's going right, 
I find that it is God dead-ending every pursuit in my life, not just to frustrate me, but to move me to the point of turning to Him, crying out to Him. Okay, listen, this is not a diagnostic tool. I'm not saying, get these six things, and every time something bad happens, figure out what it is, because you can't. That's what's going on in Job. Everybody's trying to speculate and answer the why question, and the truth is, when you read it, you find out nobody knows why. Most of the time, we don't get to know why. But all of the time, it is biblical to look at hardship and suffering, whatever is happening, and to realize God is at work in my circumstances. God's involved in some way. And just that realization will be a huge step for us because what it will do is turn our hearts to God in our hardship. If He's involved, then only He alone can save. It's like the prodigal son. God lets the prodigal son get into the pigsty and eat with the pigs. Why does He do that? So that He will be laying there and think, oh my gosh, it was so good in my dad's house. He starts thinking about the food in his dad's house, and he goes back. That's God's loving discipline to let you line the pigsty long enough to turn to him. Last week, we were uh, at a conference in Miami with Acts 29 pastors from around the world. Uh, Acts 29 is a network of about 500 churches that we're a part of, and so this conference was uh, those pastors in that network. Now, when you go to a place like that, and maybe this happens in your industry when you go to any kind of thing, it's more so, I think, with pastors. Well, you're, you're going to a place with a bunch of people that do what you do, who have churches, and all of them pretending their church is awesome, or at least wanting to, you know? So everybody asks you, like, how many people you got these days? I'm like, oh, it just depends on how you measure things, you know? Because you know, I, I know that my number is going to be smaller than their number. So there's all this posturing going on. And we all go into the week going, we're not going to do that this time. And then as soon as we start meeting people, it comes up, right? Because we all want to perform. What I love about uh, this network is the honesty of it. And so the first session, Matt Chandler, who is a pastor in Dallas, is the president of this network, uh, gets up in his flip-flops and shorts and t-shirt and says, listen, I know what it's like to come in here. I know all of you are, are pretending to be better than you are, but can we just say we're not that? Can, can we, look, he said, look, I know that some of you come in here limping, hiding sin, feeling the weight of it feeling like there's no one to talk to. Can we just be the group of people that we can talk to? And there was this invitation not to posture, but to confess and experience freedom from our sin. And there was this collective just sigh of relief in the room, like, oh, good. We can just do that. And I would extend the same invitation to you. Can we stop posturing? And Joel, I think, extends the same invitation to us. This is his invitation. It is not to perform. It is to cry out to God. It's interesting when you look at Joel. uh, It is the, the nature of repentance is overtly communal in this book. There's two verses where Joel himself cries out to the Lord, but everything else, every other instruction is to gather the assembly in the house of God and to cry out to Him and to repent together. And so we have to ask, do we have that kind of community where we can talk about sin and how it's wrecking our lives, where we can talk about that without 
condemning people or without condoning sin. That's a really hard balance. Can we talk about the reality around us, not in order to fix each other, but just to every now and then weep with those who weep and cry out to God together? That's what Joel is saying we need to do. All right, step three. Step one, honest about reality. Step two, cry out to God. Step three, rend your hearts. This is Joel's language. Chapter two, verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. So the custom in their day, when when something very serious had happened, something very grievous to God, they would tear their clothes to indicate the kind of pain and and horror of what has happened. It It was to be a reflection of mourning that was going on in their hearts. But, of course, it wasn't always that. It's very possible to go through the motions, to tear your clothes, to weep and wail, but inside to remain totally unrepentant. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians as the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. And he just says, godly sorrow produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Worldly sorrow produces death. See, godly sorrow gets past the show. It gets past reducing sin. It gets past reacting to the situation. It gets past just merely regretting consequences, and it gets into real repentance. Worldly sorrow is not like that. Uh, Worldly sorrow really is about us. It's about moving on, getting back to normal, doing what we need to do so we feel better about it. Look, when somebody says to you, because you would never say this, so when somebody says it to you, I'm sorry that you were offended. That's not repentance. That's not even an apology, all right? That is worldly grief, false repentance. Strike it from the record. Here's three marks of worldly sorrow, just surefire things. Uh, When you're exposed, you defend yourself. If in your mind right now you're defending the way you defend yourself, this is definitely you, okay? Second mark, you blame others for your sin. When you're caught, when you're exposed, when the consequences are there, you start pushing blame. It's worldly sorrow. The number one mark, scripturally, is that there's no change. And so, if you or people around you find yourself in places where you feel terrible, you wheel, you, I mean, you weep and you wail and you mourn, you make apologies, you do good things, but you don't change. It is the indicator of worldly sorrow and false repentance. I'm not saying you change all at once. Change is so hard. But the work of the Spirit in us is, in fact, to progressively bring sanctification about in our lives, to make us increasingly holy and conformed into the image of His Son, Jesus. And if that is not happening in any scale in your life, it's false repentance. I'm not saying you tried to repent falsely. I'm just saying that's what's going on. Be honest about it. Cry out to the Lord. Rend your hearts. God is saying, when he says rend your hearts, he's saying, break your hearts. It's a weird thing to say. I mean, of course we know what it means to to have our hearts broken, but what does it mean to break your own heart? 
I think this points us to the nature of what sin really is. See, sin's not just breaking God's rules. It's not some sort of debit in our heavenly bank account. Sin is way more personal than that. At its very essence, sin is always, at least in the moment, putting something before God, putting something in God's place. It is treasuring or cherishing It is loving and pursuing something ahead of or before or more than God himself. So even underneath the rules that we break, there's always some deep desire, some worship of some lesser love, some little God. And so we will lie to worship the God of approval. Uh, We will uh, sacrifice relationships to worship the God of success and power. Uh, We'll hoard to worship the God of money. We'll do good things to worship the God of self-righteousness. We will consume from people and from church to worship the almighty God of personal preference because we're Americans. These little gods, you see, they have a hold on us. It's emotional because we've given our heart to them. We've given them our love and our passion. Sin is the means by which we develop intimate relationships with little gods and lesser loves. That's what God means when he says, break your heart. Because you know what it would be like to pull away from those things? It would feel like your heart is being broken because it's emotional. It's a love relationship. And it breaks your heart. And so repentance is not just feel really bad. It is that. But it is also break away from those little gods. True repentance is feeling awful to the point that it moves you to action. That's what God means when he says, rend your hearts and not your garment. I'm not in the mood for a show. Let's get real. You all uh, have known that couple I would be curious to know what just popped into your mind when I said that couple, like a lot of different things. Here's the one I'm talking about. It's the couple that is dating and they break up, uh, but then they, nobody would know because they keep like hanging out, keep texting all the time, they keep going to movies together at home until 2 a.m. You know, there's, there's all that exclusive stuff going on. Well, what's going on? I thought y'all broke up. Well, we did. Well, no, you didn't. See, they keep resorting to each other because they have all these emotional attachments. They have all these old habits that need fulfilling, these desires that need satisfying. And they're in the habit of going to each other for those things, and so they keep doing it, even though they've broken up. That couple is doomed to, like, soap opera drama unless they have some good friends who will just say, listen, y'all didn't break up. You said the words. It didn't happen. This is bad for you. It's bad for all your friends. We're tired of it. We got to do something. We got to intervene. If you don't have friends like that, that couple's doomed. Joel is such a friend. You've torn your clothes. Great. Rend your hearts. For real this time. Repent. Last thing. Be honest, cry out to God, rend your hearts, and then trust in the Lord. Trust Him. This book has an amazing turning point in it. It's all about judgment and the day of the Lord to come, and nobody will be able to endure it. 
And then he says, return to me with all your heart. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 13. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God for, and this is the turning point. You would expect him to say, return to the Lord your God or else. But it says, return to the Lord your God for. Here's your motive. He is gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He relents over disaster. Who knows if we repent, maybe he will turn his hand of judgment away from us and instead put his hand of blessing on us. Who knows? He's like that. It's a stunning turn of events. In all my years of ministry and counseling, I think this is where most people get stuck. You you see the destruction in your life that sin has caused, and you want to turn to the Lord, but you do not expect to find a God like this, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in love. You expect to find a God of judgment, a God of disappointment, a God who will demand that you pay for what you've done. Who wants to go into the hands of a God like that? This is what happens when we get far from God. Our, our view of Him, our understanding of Him gets twisted. It's not true. We forget that He is, in fact, a God who is gracious, that He loves us not because of anything in us, but because He Himself is love. The Bible never says that, he, that God is wrath. We have to drive Him to wrath. But God is love. It is pouring out of Him. He is merciful, meaning he's not harsh. He doesn't scrutinize us. He's not exacting payment. Instead, he is tender and nurturing like a mother. God isn't saying, now I'm going to make you pay. He sympathizes with us and nurtures us. He is slow to anger. God is capable of anger, righteously so, but he's slow to it. I mean, he has to re- we have to really force his hand to be angry. But you don't have to force his hand to be attentive to you, to love you. You don't earn his love at all. Uh, Everybody has a story of uh, their dad who, like, in his anger flew off the handle. My kids could tell you some stories. Anger as a dad is almost always about payback. I've hit my limit. Somebody's going to pay for what's going on here. God does not pay back. Ever. It's not who he is. He's slow to anger and he's abounding in steadfast love. In other words, God doesn't love us moderately or sometimes, but abundantly and constantly. Apart from anything you do, it's because it's just who he is and it's his favor upon his people. Now, how do you reconcile that? How do you have a God who sends locust plague and has a day of the Lord of judgment in the valley of decision? How do you have that God and a God who is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in love? The truth is is that God is just and he does require payment for sin. But he knows that we could never make such a payment. And so God in his grace and his mercy because of his promises to his people, sends his only son, his beloved son. And Jesus comes and takes on flesh, and he says, I give myself up as a ransom for many. 
He, in his death, is the payment for sin. So his righteous life is credited to us, and our sin is placed upon him on the cross, and he is raised from the dead, and we are somehow raised with him to walk in newness of life. Do you know what that means? It means we are no longer slaves to sin. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We are free to repent. We're free to come clean. We're free to come clean with each other. We're free to experience true joy and peace and life with God. Joel is saying, trust Him. The reason you should repent is not just because you've sinned, but because He is good. Trust Him. And as I said, they do trust Him, and they find Him to be gracious and merciful, slow to anger, Abounding in steadfast love. Uh, in the rest of chapter 2, God says, I will bless you. I will restore your land. You will eat in plenty and be satisfied. All those desires you attached to lesser gods that never got satisfied with me, you're going to be satisfied. Because I have dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and I am God, and there is none else. And again, he says, my people will never be put to shame. And further, there will come a day when I pour out my Spirit. And when the Spirit comes, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. There will be the kind of community we see in Acts 2, because this is when it happened. Spirit comes at Pentecost. Everybody's confused. Peter says, oh, this is what Joel said was going to happen. God has poured out His Spirit. And then there is genuine community. There is life together. There is mission. God cannot be stopped. People are being added to this number every day, those who are being saved. It's everything we want. But the key to it, the way to it, was repentance. Because when the people asked Peter, this is wonderful that God has fulfilled His promise. What should we do? And Peter said, repent. And that's how they got what they had. And that promise is not fulfilled entirely in that day. That promise still remains open to us because God is still pouring out His Spirit on His people. And the fruit of repentance is that we would have this Spirit, that we would receive and be filled with God's Spirit, and that it would lead to genuine community and mission and life together with God. Isn't that what you want? You know how to get there? Repent. Let me pray for us. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.